This is Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 630. And the quote of the day is, don't spend all of your time trying to find yourself. Spend your time creating yourself. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming, and beyond, and beyond, and beyond. Hey, hey, what's going on, everybody? Nick Rafini here, episode 630, and I hope all's well in your world, and it's just crazy. It's like episodes just keep coming. 630. It's insane to me. So if this is your first one, your 630th or somewhere in between, I appreciate you being here. I appreciate you listening. Uh, it really means the world to me, and the thing that's crazy is that there's still so many drummers out there to talk to. There's so many more that I want to get on the show. And uh, so it's, it's, it's a never ending thing. It's much like learning to play drums. And you realize that I, and I talk about it in this episode that you, in the beginning, like I thought I knew everything. And then I realized, oh my God, I don't know anything. And that's sort of with this podcast where I'm like, I've interviewed everyone. And then I think, oh my God, I haven't interviewed anyone yet. So uh, still working on a very long list of people, but this one in particular is a great episode. So let's get into this one. So this is with Brian Griffin and Brian is a studio and touring drummer who has worked with Brandy Carlisle and Patti Smith, Lana Del Rey, Richard Marks, Jamie McLean, and is currently working with the Black Crows. He is on their Shake, their, Shake Your Moneymaker tour right now. And he is an East Coast guy. He he's actually living out here now, uh, on on the West Coast, pretty pretty close to me. So, and he and I have not ha- hadn't met before this conversation. So it's really great to to meet new people, hear his perspective about, you know, just building your craft and building your career slowly and surely, just sticking with it, uh, and really taking the time to dig into styles and dig into uh, different, you know, different locales and working with different bands and writing songs and things like that. So an an amazing conversation with a really accomplished guy. So I'm not going to waste any more time. Let's get into it with Brian Griffin. Hey, hey, Brian, what's happening, man? How are you? Hey, good. Thanks for having me, Nick. Yeah, of course. Of course, thanks for oh. jumping through the hoops to uh, to come on the the Drummers Resource Podcast. <laughs> yeah, right on. Yeah, I'm excited. It'll be cool. I, I was saying, uh, you know, off air. I I always feel guilty because anyone who spends enough time with me to come on the podcast, and you know, like I I believe that time is our most valuable asset, and and I say, hey, do you want to come on and do this thing? And people are like, yeah, sure. And then I'm like, here's a bullet list of all the things I need you to. T- <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, so I thank you publicly. Yeah, of course. Yeah, sorry I couldn't make it happen sooner. <laughs> it's, it's all right. Yeah. So where are you in the world right now? Uh, right now I'm in Charlotte, North Carolina, and um, yeah, I have a show later tonight. Should be fun. Had a nice off day yesterday. Nice. Yeah. Charlotte is a is a great city. It really yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah. Really you know cool. I. I explored. A, I have my bike out on tour with me, and I and I sort of uh, explored some different parts that I'd never seen before. Yesterday, it's pretty. It's pretty cool. Oh, nice road bike yeah. or mountain bike? Uh, road bike. Yeah. Nice. As you said that, an email just came through from uh, from Rafa, the cycling company. Oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> I, I guess you're into it too. I am, but it's, you were like, I have my road bike and my e-, and the email was like, boom. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> let me close. I mean. Let me close that out so I don't <laughs> do any expensive shopping while running. <laughs> uh, so, how long have you been on? How, how long have you been on this tour so far? Um, we started rehearsals in Nashville July sixth, and then the first two shows were in Nashville on July twenty and twenty one. Gotcha. So is it a is it an extended tour? You're doing mostly fly dates. Um, this is uh, no. It's we sort of left and we've been on buses the whole time. Uh, oh, we, got you. we we flew between cities a couple of times, but we haven't been home at all. Gotcha. So how yeah. long is the total the total leg? Uh, we finish up um, in upstate New York in uh, September 25th. So oh, a couple cool. of weeks. Yeah. <clears throat> so how how's it been going so far? Man, it's been awesome. This, I mean. I, I'm, I feel so fortunate on a bunch of levels, but you know, obviously for right now, for how everything's going in the country and the world, like it's kind of amazing that we're still out here considering mm-hmm. that the Delta variant picked up when we right. first, when this thing first started, you know, things were starting to open up. We were seeing a lot of announcements for tours and gigs and people were getting excited, whatever. And we all left and uh, did the rehearsals and gigs. And then suddenly the Delta variant really started to pick up. And then we saw other tours starting to get canceled and, it's like, oh, geez, we got to sort of thread the needle on this one. And <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> but, uh, you know, so anyway, I feel really fortunate to still be working and everybody's healthy on the whole tour and crew. And, and, uh, you know, we're, it seems like we're going to be able to finish with no problems, which would be great. Nice. Yeah. What, what is the, what is the vibe out there on the road between crew, the band, uh, you know, the fans, and I don't mean the vibe of the music and everything, but sort of is, is, does it seem a little weird or, or do, do people seem a little uneasy or is it just sort of back to normal? Um, gosh, fans seem like they're ready to rage. <laughs> yeah. So that, yeah. from what I can tell that, um, the crew, when we first got to rehearsals, it was kind of fun because a lot of the crew, they all know each other from other tours. Like there's the whole production side of the team is from Madonna's camp and a bunch of the audio people are from the Rolling Stones camp. And anyway, none of the, nobody had worked in like 15 months. So when rehearsals first started and all these people were saying hello to each other, they were all like hugging it out because they haven't worked either. And they were also excited to see each other and get back to work, right. l- let alone the musicians. So that part was, was really fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which I, I mean, I understand the the fan side of it because yeah. during COVID, I mean, not that we're out of it, but you know, when everything was completely shut down, I was yeah. like, I would pay an absurd amount of money to go watch a really bad band right now, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Just to go see some live music and and, and get yeah. the hell out. Man, you and I could form that really bad band. I think you money. know. I've, I've been thinking about it. <laughs> I've been in a lot of bad bands my whole life, so I feel like now I could be at the pinnacle of my yeah. of my band band bad band career. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, I'm open to having another yeah. drummer. That's why. <laughs> yeah, That's I like awesome. it. We could rehearse at uh, at TK Studio. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right on. <laughs> so. I want to backtrack a little bit. Uh, sure. I know before uh, before we went on air, we were saying you're from Connecticut. You lived in Brooklyn for a while. What was what was it for you that got you into drums? And and what was what were you listening to when you were coming up? Were you just listening to what was on the radio, or did you have some outside influences going on there? Um, gosh, you know, I, I I wanted to play drums since before I could remember, and then you know played in 
you know, school band all through elementary school and, you know, and then middle school and high school, they had jazz band and stuff. And then once I started taking private lessons, like maybe around sixth grade or so, I can't remember when that, maybe fifth, sixth grade, you know, drum teachers start teaching you how to play a little bit of jazz so that you can just learn some technique and some independence. And then, um, and then you start playing and, you know, if you can play in the jazz bands, if your school has one, that was like a way to start listening to some of that music and at least learning some of those patterns and beats and grooves and stuff and then um you know around the house my, my dad listened to a fair amount of like beach boys and the eagles and doobie brothers and there was definitely a heavy amount of like almond brothers once we got into like high school my brother plays guitar and and we had bands in high school mm -hmm. and we were playing like southern rock and a lot of classic rock tunes together and, and um nice you know and then and then uh you know, so I, was, I guess I was listening to a fair amount of that. Like maybe in the 90s, I also started listening to like, you know, as everybody else did in the early 90s, some of the like Chili Peppers and Jane's Addiction and some of those things as well. But I also like going to the library and getting Art Blakey CDs out and listening to that and some Miles Davis CDs. So I was just right. sort of trying to soak up whatever I could. I had a couple of great teachers in high school who would like turn me on to like the Keith Jarrett trio or, you know some great singer songwriters or Joni Mitchell and stuff like that. So <clears throat> I don't know. It was sort of changing from day to day around that. And then when I was in college, um, I, I played it like in the university jazz band. And that's where I really, even though I was studying liberal arts and um, I, I just spent a lot of time in the music library and that's where I like was getting into the Tony Williams and Elvin Jones and just trying to learn that kind of on my own. I wasn't at a music school at the time, but you know, I, Right. Uh, some friends and I would play like little coffee shops or little frat parties and maybe hire some of the local jazz faculty to play with us and and then just try mm -hmm. to learn that music. And so, I, you know, I kind of was able to maybe get a little bit better at playing that music in a vacuum because there wasn't really much competition at the time. And then, gotcha. um, but, you know, I was listening to a lot of jazz then and then. Um, and then, I, and then I went to Manhattan School of Music afterwards and, and did a master's in jazz performance in New York after I finished college. And that was a real, you know, that was a real opportunity, but also like, you know, uh, it was just a challenge. Like, I was, you know, I was studying with John Riley and there was all these amazing musicians and you, you learn mm -hmm. pretty quick, you know, where you sort of fit within the New York bebop world and what you're up <laughs> right. for and, you know, and, uh, and it was cool. I mean, you learn like a, so much discipline and I, you know, I got some more like theory and some arranging chops together and, you know, some of that stuff just to learn and get my feet wet. It was the first time I'd ever really um you know officially studied music mm -hmm. uh, you know aside from like private lessons and stuff like that so did uh were you uh, when you were going down this road go you know studying with other teachers and then and then going to manhattan school of music were you were you doing this just for personal enrichment or were you thinking this is going to be a career that i really want to pursue you know that's a really great question i think i sort of I had sort of been scared off of, from being a, a professional musician. You know, my parents, even though they like, you know, they worked so hard to be able to provide, you know, instruments and and um, lessons for us as kids. And, and uh, but they're also like, oh, you know, don't be a musician. That's scary. There's not a lot of money or, you know, whatever. And so yeah. I, I didn't I hadn't been exposed to anybody who was a working musician really at all not until you know in college there was a couple of great teacher faculty there who had great sort of jazz careers and in, in virginia and then um 
I don't know. And, and at some point I was like, all right, at some point I'll get a desk job and I'll, and I'll do the responsible thing. But what if I just took two years to go to music school just to enjoy it, you know, and just see, just to see what happens if I, you know, try to mix it up with like a real music community in New York city. Right. And, uh, and then once I finished school, it was like, well, maybe I can get a temp job and keep playing with some different types of songwriters and bands and, and then maybe try to teach some lessons and let me just sort of hang out. And, you know, I tried applying for a couple different jobs, like an advertising firm here, or there. I did work at a jingle house for a little bit as an intern before I started music school. You know, I, I tried a few things just to see mm -hmm. where else I could fit in music besides playing. And, uh, I, you know, I just sort of spent a bunch of years in New York, just like hustling it out between little temp jobs and whatever I could do, teaching lessons just so I could keep playing with bands that I was meeting in New York. And right. Eventually you're doing these little weekend tours, which would turn into week, you know, van tours around the South, you know, the Northeast or the Southeast. And I don't know. That's just sort of, it was, it was always sort of a game. Like how do you pay rent as, and just keep playing with bands? You know? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Especially, I mean, it's, it's not easy in New York either. Yeah. It, you know, it's, it's, and New York is just, it, it keeps going up and up and up. It's, it's almost like you can't afford to be an artist and live in New York anymore. And yeah. LA's, I, I mean, you may feel, have a different opinion on this and, and I'm open to that. Uh, but I feel like LA is, it's expensive, but it's livable because you can live on the outskirts or something like that. But New York is such an isolated community that if you live, you know, pretty far out, then you got to hustle your way into the yeah. end you know drag your stuff on the subway and all that yeah i think the only reason i was able to sort of make it happen is because you know rather than going and finding an apartment in a newspaper or something or a real estate listing which would have just broken my bank in one month you know you just sort of make friends and find other you know artists or you know people doing interesting stuff and maybe they have apartment shares or whatever and you know mm -hmm. i was able to just live in this place in prospect heights that was super affordable i lived in a shoe box i mean it was just a tiny little bedroom in a three bedroom and it was a four floor walk up and but it was just cheap rent and like it was like unheard of rent and even though i did, there was nothing luxurious at all about where i lived for so many years it, it afforded me the ability to be able to leave town in a van and right whatever from time to time and you know yeah so did did the bebop scene scare you or did it open your eyes and say maybe this maybe the beat because well the reason why i ask this i know a lot of people that are saying oh, i thought i wanted to play jazz and then i went to new york and saw everyone else playing jazz and was sort of like oh my god these guys are these guys are playing jazz i don't know what i'm doing so i'm gonna I, let them do that i don't know if it was like fear that that changed my direction so much but i think right around the time that i was also in music school i started playing with some friends who had a rock band and and you know while i'm like working on my philly joe jones and learning roey haynes you know and just like trying to get as much of that together as possible during those couple of years at school occasionally i'd get together on weekends with some friends in brooklyn and and uh, they'd say hey you know i just wrote this song here's a guitar part what, what do you you know play something for it. And I, and I, I was just like, Oh wait, I can just make up my own thing. <laughs> and, and we would just have like a fresh idea that didn't have to reference any history necessarily or whatever. And it was just sort of a, it was just an interesting culture or a creative exercise, you know, mm -hmm. just mm -hmm. to be able to like make fresh art with nobody looking over your shoulder, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, uh, and then I also kind of got interested once, once like this one band I played in, like we started, 
you know, making demos at this of this little studio where this guy gave us a cheap rate. So we would just go in like a couple times a month and start recording demos. And, you know, I didn't have that much recording experience when I was at Manhattan School. And, and at the time, there wasn't that much um, emphasis on that in the program. You know, it wasn't that technological of a program. It was really, it was really about jazz history and learning how to play jazz. So I, I really got interested in, in like, well, what do my drums sound like when I record them? And then at a certain point, it was like, I need to get better about playing with a click, you know, mm-hmm. and then, you know, and then this band would play like rock clubs and, you know, every once in a while I'd hear like a board tape and I'd hear my snare drum in a rock club through a sound system. I'd be like, man, I kind of like that sound, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, you know, it was just sort of like a different interest that, that picked up that, that wasn't, you know, just a, an itch that wasn't scratched by playing jazz when I was at school, you know, sure. playing bigger drum sounds and playing bigger, you know, bigger grooves and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I talk about it a lot on the podcast, the uh, about playing along with records and and learning cover tunes and how good that is for development. But the flip side of that, writing tunes, you know, working with other bands, even if it's even if the band never goes anywhere or or you know doesn't do anything, how much of that experience helped you later on? Like you said, learning how to work in the studio. You don't have much experience in the studio. You don't you don't yeah. have experience playing with a click track, and you you start to understand songwriting and structure and all these things uh when you're working this out with a band how how important was that for your development yeah i I think i think it was a a really big part of it like just trying to learn how how do you develop one section into the next like what's a great transition what sounds best to an audience you know what's what's like what's what's the biggest clearest idea that you can present that doesn't clutter the vocal and doesn't you know yeah, it helps deliver what the what the whole song is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that was it was it was and still is pretty important. Sure, yeah. sure. Do you think that a lot of the 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 stuff that you were playing jazz wise was working its way into your playing at all? Um, I don't know. That's a really interesting question. Um. Along the sidelines of that is one, one thing I got to do a fair amount of when I was at Manhattan School is that there was a couple of musicians who were from Brazil and we would occasionally play on weekends and stuff at the school, just getting together. And they would show me some different types of bassas and samba jazz things and partido alto rhythms and things like that. And, you know, it's just jazz songs that they were writing on top of those grooves. And um, that sort of got me interested in this type of improvising, but also had this like this real bottom side to the groove where like maybe a kick drum pattern always stayed the same. And maybe it was related to some kind of dance or something. Mm -hmm. And that, that sort of, that, that I think more directly like led me more to like, okay, how do you keep like the, the solid foundation of some groove, like feeling really strong without cluttering it up with too much improvisation or too much, you know, too many fills or anything. Mm-hmm. I really kind of got into that. It's always interesting the, the approach or the, the thought process that, Oh, if you're just sort of sitting there, just keeping this thing moving, yeah. then, then you're like, you're not being creative or you're not, yeah. you know, you're not expressing yourself. And I totally disagree. And especially, I mean, I got really into the Brazilian stuff as well when I was in college and everything. Mm. And, and some of those, some of the patterns are so, they're so hypnotizing yeah. and, 
and really they're are. not easy to play underneath other stuff that you have going on and you just get locked into this groove and it's sort of like i don't want to change yeah that's really i don't yeah. want to move i remember having this distinct sensation when i was at at, at, at music school that there was some, I don't even remember what the song was or something. I, maybe I was talking with a friend or some rehearsal, but I remember feeling this shift of like, almost like there's two spheres, one on top of the other. And like, there's like someone present a song. And on one level, I kind of wish that there had been like some hip hop sampler playing like the biggest, deepest like hip hop groove to keep that bottom part there mm -hmm. so that I could like improvise all this jazz stuff in the top sphere, you know? But I was right. like, oh, but I, I guess, but since that big beat isn't there, I should sort of do some of that. It was sort of like, it was sort of like two different worlds and I didn't know how to bridge the gap necessarily. And then, I don't know, the more I started playing rock and pop centered music, I just started focusing more on that bottom sphere just because I felt like, well, whatever happens, that needs to be there no matter what. You know, it'd yeah. be nice to be like improvising on top and interacting with vocals or guitar solos, and you know, just being like a free spirit, really expressive on a drum kit. But this other foundation needs to be there, and I kind of, you know, just fell more and more in love with that side of things. I think. Yeah, I and I think there's something to be said about the elasticity of all these types of grooves like whether you're talking yeah. bebop or or you're talking any of these latin grooves and and yeah. afro-cuban and all of this stuff and then you put that what no i think that no matter what if you're playing a lot of that stuff and then you go and sit and and play with a rock band you're going that some of that is going to be there still yeah. you're going to have this like this pulse feeling in your playing which i hear a lot in your playing as well oh, i appreciate that thanks yeah. Do you think that that's a direct correlation? I don't know. I mean, I, I hope so. I think, I think like the music that I've, you know, gotten into in the years since then, you know, over the last 20 years or so, like New Orleans music and all that, like there's, there's players that play that way on the drum set, you know, whether mm -hmm. it's Bob Marley and the Whalers or Zigaboo mode, at least with the, the meters or, you know, a, a bunch of these great players that have this huge foundational thing, but they're still interacting with the song. And it's just like little bits of bubbles of interaction will happen, but they're just keeping that foundation so solid. And, and they're not doing it alone, right? They're in these bands where the whole band is focused on that, keeping that foundations, you know, feeling so great. That's so mm -hmm. like hip, hypnotic. <clears throat> yeah. It seems... I know I'm going to get emails about this before I even open my mouth, but it <laughs> seem it just it seems like there's there's less uh, homogenization of things now, and there's a lot more of like this is the thing that I do, and there's not a lot of like outside influence going on or different styles of music. Where where I feel like when you and I came up, it was like, listen, yes, if you want to be a rock drummer, that's fine, but like you should at least understand and know how to play jazz or you should know how to play mm. a bossa nova or you should know how to play a you know cha-cha and all this other stuff mm. whether you're ever in a band that plays that stuff or not you should at least understand these other elements of music to have it go into your playing and now i think a lot of it is we're just sort of like getting this bite-sized information and just mimicking what we hear and not really getting the 360 view of of music yeah, I wonder. I wonder for for kids who are who are taking drum lessons now, who are let's say in middle school, like I hope there's teachers that are 
still saying, all right, we got to learn the, these Latin rhythms, this swing rhythm, try to look, read this big band chart and, you know, let's get our snare drum stuff together and here's some rock and roll beats and funk beats. Like I'd imagine it is like, you know, I'm seeing these YouTube stars that have like phenomenal technique and get around a drum kit. I imagine they can play a bunch of these things too, but I do. I don't know if they get necessarily get the opportunity to play all those rhythms. I hope so. Right. I think (laughs) I, I I don't, I don't think that they can. Yeah. I don't know. Physically. I'm sure that like, if someone showed them how to play it, they could play it. That's not what I'm, I'm not saying that, but I'm guessing that if you, if you were like, Hey, like, I love that, you know, 64th note thing that you did with your feet, but like play a, play a bossa nova and like really play a bossa nova make it groove i don't think i don't know yeah. i don't know if they would be able to i don't know yeah i mean some is I, I don't know if i necessarily played any of those grooves convincingly in high school but at least you get aware of some of the patterns and you can start like listening to some of those records and start associating with it but right. know, it takes a long time to like i i sort of think of it in terms of like you have to have give yourself time to fall in love with these different types of music. Like you have to mm-hmm. have a real moment with Brazilian music and, and, and spend some, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to be able to go there and take some lessons. And I had a whole minute with it where I was taking lessons and <clears throat> doing a whole thing. And then, you know, then I got into like the sort of Jim Keltner, Ry Cooter side of things. Once I started playing with my friend, Jamie McLean, and I was like trying to find inspiration with that. And I sort of had like a whole couple of years where I was like really obsessed with that style of playing and, and trying mm-hmm. to see what I could learn. And, and I think being able to play all these different styles of music, it's, it just takes a bunch of years because you it really does. need to, yeah, you need to have a real emotional association with each of those styles of music. Yeah. It was, it was a little disheartening when I got to college because I thought I knew everything. And then I realized I, I knew nothing, you know, yeah. and you're like, oh, but it was not, it was great because you have all these things that you're, that you're open to. And then you say, oh my God, I get, okay. Yeah. I, now I need 20 years to, yeah. to go through all of this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. When you dive into a particular style, what's your, what's your recommendation for others? If the, you know, if they're looking to do the same thing, uh, does it just start with listening? Do you, do you start trying to figure the stuff out? Do you take lessons? Do you, do you chart some, some of the stuff I, out or? Yeah, I think, you know, all the above, I'll, it's, I think I've probably done it different ways for different types of things. Um, I was explaining to somebody recently, they were asking about like, how I've gotten into a feel of a certain type of song or whatever. And, and I think some is just like, you know, if I, if sometimes when I hear a recording that has a certain pocket to it, that just really excites me and sounds so different from how I would do it. I try to just like listen to it a real lot and then even tap along to it so much that like, let's say the backbeats in a place that's just like fantastic, but not supernatural to me yet. I just do it over and over and over again. And then I'll like play along to it so much that it's that it's a little less alien to me and then hopefully some part of it is rubbing off on me you know i've definitely mm-hmm. i'll I, i'm I don't, i'm not like a crazy transcriber but every once in a while i'll find stuff on youtube and find a way to you know i, I like throw a little clip from youtube you can record it into ableton live and then there you can just like slow it down and i'll just write out little phrases sometimes if there's things that i think are kind of interesting oh that's maybe cool. maybe i want to get under my fingertips Mm-hmm. yeah definitely charting out songs is a is a thing you know there this on this tour you know rich Robinson. this is the black the black crows tour i don't know if we mentioned that but you know rich robinson sort of runs the rehearsals and and gets us all going with the band and occasionally he just turns us on to songs that i didn't necessarily know not necessarily the ones that we're going to play but 
but just like, hey, here's a thing that's a great example of how, you know, the well, a great model for how the band could sound on X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. You know, one was this incredible, it's just so great. I've been listening to it a lot. It's this live version of the Little Feet song, Rock and Roll Doctor. And it's, mm-hmm. I think it's like live in Holland or something. And it's just this swampiest, murkiest um, recording. And somehow it's just like the tightest thing too. The song arrangements really sort of angular and different, but they just sort of breeze through it like it's nothing. And they're so sort of relaxed and playing this super deep groove that's, you know, their version on a New Orleans thing. But uh-huh. I don't think any of them were from New Orleans. They were more of an L.A. band. But anyway, so, you know, that something like that. I just like I just try to listen to it a lot. You know, mm-hmm. I wrote out the form of the song because the form is really kind of interesting and different. Have you checked out the new Maximus snare drum from Mapex? Designed by Jeff Hamilton with a nod to the traditions of jazz greats, the Maximus has the sound and feel of a vintage drum built with modern precision and articulation. Made from a 6-inch deep 100% mahogany shell, it's outfitted with a special snare bed for the execution of the most dynamic playing. It's a choice for a warm, big sound with the ability to whisper in the most delicate small group settings. Tradition meets modern voice, the Maximus is a commanding instrument for all forms of playing. To check out the Maximus and the rest of the Black Panther Design Lab series, check out mapexdrums.com. It's interesting when you mentioned feels and when someone approach you know is approaching a song from a different feel versus you know one feel versus the other and i think there's some real power in being able to sit behind the kit and they say hey give me you know give me a play this tune but give it a little bit of a new orleans feel versus mm. you know i want give it like give it a motown feel or give it mm-hmm. a you know a stevie wonder feel or something like that mm-hmm. um and there, like there's just these little nuances yeah and do you think that that's do you think that that's something that you can that you can get on a path to try to learn that stuff or do you feel like it's just a matter of like learn playing all these styles over the years and they just kind of start to naturally come out in your playing yeah i think i think you could put yourself a little bit you know try like try to teach yourself some so you know if you hear somebody reference some style of music that you don't know very well like you could do some homework and then see if you like some songs and some records and then uh, but then you know if you're on a bandstand you know like in a rehearsal and somebody mentions something like that I, I rather than just write like a motown feel i've heard of people going like oh you know why don't you write the name of a song on your chart just like just so you can actually reference this very specific groove or feeling you know if there's something that yeah. reminds you of just to put you in a in a zone sure you know yeah i don't, I don't know if that answers your question but no it yeah, does yeah, it does yeah. i'm 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 a big believer in the nuances and i'm really interested in the nuances but and and all of the all of the intangibles that you don't you can't find in a book or something like that and sure you can mm. learn styles in a book and stuff like that but mm. i think what makes a great drummer great is is all of these things that that you can't write into a book when you talk about feel and you talk about, you know, where their backbeat is laying or, or, you know, their phrasing and things like that. All of these things that they're hard to explain. They're hard to sort of wrap your brain around. They're hard to, to teach someone. And I think that they're things that just naturally 
happen, but there has to be some way that, you know, that you develop your own sound and, and things like that. And I'm always trying to unpack and, and unlock different ways for people to do that, including yeah, myself. Yeah. I think if I think about the times when I've had like, you know, little, uh, periods of growth, I think that it's literally f- from watching people in a room playing. I've seen DVDs, I've read books, I've had teachers, but there's something about seeing a great drummer live in a room and seeing the choices that they make in a musical situation that somehow the next time I play drums, it, I immediately start trying to you know, make those same things happen or at least try some of those decisions on. Um, I was just thinking uh, earlier uh, this week, a couple of days ago, about like I got to see Sean Pelton play a lot in New York, mm-hmm. and I've seen him play so many different types of bands and different size rooms, and and there's something about seeing the way he would excite a room playing a shuffle or some singer songwriter groove, or as soon as he would come in, it just lifted this energy and just made just made some event happen that you couldn't really put your finger on, and it just was like it was just an energy really. And I, and uh, yeah. you know, anytime I would go play some bar gig after that, I'd be like, how can I make something like that happen for me? I'm not him. I'm not in that band. I, mm-hmm. I'm like in my own band, my own drums, and so somehow. I don't want to do exactly what he did because that's not going to work. But how can I sort of make that feeling happen, you know? Yeah. And just experimenting. And, yeah. Same thing. Like Sean's, person, a, Sean's yeah. an interesting guy. Oh, go yeah. ahead. I cut you off. No, no, no that's fine. It's just like, anyway, there's plenty of drummers who, who made me feel that. And I just like, there's something about seeing them play. And it's just like, wow, I really feel like I learn a lot after seeing somebody great play, you know, very quickly. Mm-hmm. You know, like, yeah. Yeah. With with Sean specifically, he's such yeah. a like you said he he excites a room. He's so animated, yeah. and it almost seems like it almost seems like he's sort of bouncing around behind the kit. And to me, when I first saw him, it, I and this is going to sound bad, but I don't mean it this way. But it was sort of like there was sort of like no rhyme or reason to what was going on back there. But it sounded good. But then when you pay mm. closer attention, you're like, okay, this guy's like he's he's there he's he's you know he knows what he's doing all of these these movements and things that he's doing are deliberate and he's making really good musical choices and musical decisions but from from just looking at him there's that like you said that excitement in his playing where he's got he's not just sitting back there like he doesn't he doesn't look like he has like this perfect form is what i'm saying um but everything sounds great and he's excited and and i think that that seeps into the music yeah yeah it's just like bringing enthusiasm right yeah yeah i don't think i explained that very well so yeah (laughs) Yeah, i think there's yeah it's it's interesting i mean it doesn't even have to be about playing loud or busy or whatever i mean i've seen people play like the subtlest ballads with 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 heavy enthusiasm like that and it just it just really makes something happen in a room Mm-hmm. It's really something. Yeah. yeah. There it's like watching uh like Jeff Hamilton play brushes. Yeah. You know, and I'm I have yet to see Jeff. I, I keep I check his schedule every once in a while just to see if something lines up, but I'm but uh yeah, I mean I've seen plenty of clips of him. I you know, since moving out to LA it was kind of cool to just to be able to start to see uh drummers that I didn't necessarily see often or hadn't seen yet and yeah. One that comes to mind, with particularly with what we're talking about right now, is I saw um, Kurt Biscara do this thing at the Baked Potato, or it was sort of this groove-centered, um, like 
improv group with, um, gosh, I think he was playing drums, and then Toss Panos, I believe, was yeah. also playing drums, and then, and um, and what's uh, his, and uh, it's, a it's player a, whose name escapes me. It's yeah, uh, yeah. Galactic Boudico, right? Is that something? It? Something like that. Yeah. I, 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 to be honest, I can't even remember some of the players. It's been a few years now, and then and then you know, and then Kurt just like. 20 inch kick and snare and hat and he would just play some little four on the floor groove right at right at the right moment and it was like oh that's why he's carpascara it was (laughs) just like it was undeniable i was like damn that's really something man it's really something and i get it you know yeah Yeah. and he's and he's such a uh, room yeah yeah i mean he's kurt is such an an unassuming guy too and and, but like oh man he's You know, but really, he, and he like grew up here and grew up, you know, playing with Jeff Picaro and all those guys. Yeah, just like, yeah. It's so I'm, special. Yeah. I'm trying to, I'm, I'm looking it up now. Uh, yeah, Galactic Booty Co. It's Toss and Kurt. And then there's a thing on Aquarian Drumheads. There's a bunch of stuff on there about their, about, uh, about them. And there's a bunch of videos on there. So people should go mm. check it out though. Yeah. Because Toss is, Toss is amazing too. Oh yeah, man. To see him too and see, see like his phrasing around it. It was beautiful. It was a really interesting thing. Nice. Yeah. I'm, I had I'm, seen him once before. Toss I saw do this great, um, John Schofield joined uh, Robin Ford for this like blues. I don't know if they made a record, but I saw that. I think they did like a week of dates at the Blue Note in New York. And it was, um, I believe it was Robin Ford and Toss Panos. Oh, and then, uh, I believe Andy Hess, a, a good friend of ours bass from player. Brooklyn, yeah, bass player, yeah. and then uh, and then John Schofield joined, and they just played blues all night, and it was just the nastiest thing. It was nice. so great. Yeah, he so was in great. he was in the Black Crows for a while too. Yeah, he right. was. Yeah, yeah, we've caught up a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. early two thousands. And then, I think he was in. YouTube I met him. Uh, I met Andy. I was on tour. We were playing at Nectar's in in. Uh, Burlington, and he was there. He was up there with, uh, with Government Mule at the time. Oh, right on. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a while ago. Yeah, he's a real force, man. I've learned so much playing with him and watching him a bunch of years. When I find the first time I finally saw him play in New York, um, I I was just so transfixed with his playing, and I was talking to him afterwards, and he was like, "Oh man, if you're interested, you know, I'm doing this other gig tomorrow." lakeside lounge or something and so it's like all right i'm free and i went that night saw him playing this other band and then he's like oh if you're doing this you know if you're free tomorrow i'm playing at 55 bar and i think i saw him play for three or four nights in a row in different bands (laughs) and i was just like i'm in what i want to know everything this guy's doing i want to you know and it was like you know sean pelton was on one gig and maybe tony mason and adam levy were on another gig it was just like oh this is (laughs) <laughs> uh, I mean, I want to learn everything these guys are up to. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Yeah. I haven't seen, uh, I haven't seen much of what he's been doing lately. I uh, think he had some Robin Ford dates recently. And did then, he? uh, yeah, I know he's been doing some, playing some great bands around New York. Yeah. He's, he's That's a monster. True. If anyone has yeah. a chance to go check out, uh, Andy has playing bass. You should, yeah. you should go do that. For sure. sure. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> yeah. So I want to switch gears a little bit. We talked sure. about when, so you're living in New York and you said, you know, oh, I'd connect with this band or that band and do, you know, do a gig here or there or do a weekend thing or maybe a couple of days in a, in a van. How does that go? How do you go from there to 
you know, Brandy Carlisle and Patti Smith and Lana Del Rey. And how does that, how does that career start to take shape for you and, and start to accelerate? Um, gosh, very slowly. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I don't know if there was necessarily one common thread or anything. I think it was just sort of being around and playing a bunch. Um, what, what happened? I'm trying to think if, if one thing had really led to any of those major gigs. You, you know, the, the, I, I was in a band called The Navigators that, that toured like around the Midwest a bunch and then played in, in, the, in New York occasionally. But th- that band and some other bands I played with beforehand, there was like a thing where it's like, oh, you don't want to play New York too much because you, 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 know, you want all your fans to come to the big Mercury Lounge date or whatever it is. Right. So I remember like as much as I was working like office jobs and then rehearsing in these bands and then maybe we're traveling in vans and stuff, I definitely wasn't visible in New York. People didn't necessarily know who I was, and maybe that's fine. I probably didn't play on a level where people needed to know whatever. You know, I hadn't learned a lot of things by then yet, but um, I remember that I just hadn't hadn't really been really on the scene. I didn't know a bunch of session players. I didn't know like-minded people. I just played in the one or two bands that I was in for a couple of years, and then mm-hmm. um, and then that one band, maybe that band, the Navigators, stopped playing, and people moved on to other things. And, and then I was just teaching lessons, like five six days a week like community centers and after school music programs and private lessons and that's when i was really getting into brazilian music and playing percussion instruments and taking lessons with that but i wasn't necessarily playing drum set a lot around that i wasn't in any bands and then um i happened somebody happened to see me play like one gig and and jamie mclean came and he's this great great guitar player i've played with in a band Mm -hmm. for 15 years and and in the beginning, the first handful of years that we were playing, you know, we were working together a lot. We tried writing tunes together. We were in his van a lot. He did a lot of van touring. But same thing, we'd be in New York only occasionally. And then, and then we started playing this venue. God, there was just this one little season where uh, we would play at Rockwood Music Hall, and then we would play the National Underground, this this club on Houston Street, and we started playing there like once a week, sometimes twice a week. It was just this bar, and this great singer songwriter named Aaron Lee Tashin had a band called the Madison Square Gardeners, and he was playing there all the time. And then, and then suddenly it was like the a good friend of mine, Ben Mars, great bass player, he was playing with us at that time. Suddenly there was just this hang, and I would go hang at one or two of the three of those venues. And I'm starting to recognize everybody. And it's all other, you know, there were some people who were a little, a couple of years younger than me that were all a part of the new school and they were all great side musicians, you know, bass players, drummers, et cetera. And mm-hmm. it started to be a little bit of a hang. And then, and then, um, I don't know, one band, like the, uh, my friend Ben introduced me to this singer named Zach Williams. And I, and from that we, we started this band or, you know, I joined the band that they started called the Lone Bellow. And that was this band that, we made this cool record and that got picked up. And from there it was just like van touring, you know, sprinter around the country. Like, and we got to do a bunch of the, like, you know, um, did Jay Leno and, uh, some late night shows, Craig Ferguson, things like that. And, and that was, that was a really great experience. That was maybe two years of just like, you know, made two records with them and, and, um, a, a lot of national touring. And then with that, I, uh, we did a whole summer opening up for Brandy Carlisle, which was really fun. And I, that's where I'd first seen her and really got to learn her music. And I would just go watch her every night. We would do our opening set. And I think I caught every single set she did. I was just like, I'm just going to find an empty seat, you know, which, you know, sometimes when you're doing so many dates opening for somebody, 
you know, catch a few of the shows and then maybe you want to go back to the hotel or do something else or go meet up with some friends. Right. I just kept watching her show every night. And, uh, and I thought the band was super interesting and, you know, I, I loved her whole take on everything. It was just like this energetic version of Emmylou Harris meets Johnny Cash or Jeff Buckley or something. I don't know. I just thought it was so wild. And, um, and then she, you know, randomly she asked if I would record a couple songs and I was like, yeah, of course I would, you know? So I recorded, um, a record with her and then you know maybe about six months later she asked if i would tour that that record i was like yeah of course so that that just sort of kind of came out of you know seems like it came out of nowhere you know but uh right that, that was a real fortunate thing I, I i i feel really grateful for that and had a couple of great years playing in that band i wonder yeah. i wonder if that's a matter of her knowing that you were out there watching every night and you understood her music or if she you know, was hearing you know. play every night yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, there was a thing that I was getting into with with the Lone Velo, where it was like, you know, there, there are these three powerful singers, and um, and I, I sort sort of get into like playing these big tom beats and stuff, just to like play, you know, something that sort of to like equate, you know, wouldn't get in the way of the vocals, you know, because I'm not like bashing on crash cymbals and cracking snare drums, but I would just be like pounding out things on toms behind them, which to me sonically left a lot of room for vocal range stuff, but it would still deliver as much power. And I think she kind of got a kick out of that. She saw me do it a bunch and she's like, I would like you to do some of that on a couple songs on this new record. So, you know, we tried a couple things like that and I don't know, it was just some sound and I think I'd see, even seen Sean Pelton do it on something where I was like, what if this rock beat just took place only on toms? You know, your hi-hat parts on a floor tom and your backbeats on a higher tom and that's it, you know, and just pound it out as soulfully as you can. And somehow because toms are just a little bit darker and it's a shorter note, it doesn't clutter up the mix so much, you know? Right, right. And so I, I don't know that. I mean, that's just one little example of maybe why she... <laughs> why she called me to do that but that was just like a sound that i found um uh, around that time that sort of that sort of worked and it led me to a little bit of work with some different people greg holden too i got to work with him a little bit great uh, singer songwriter around nice. that time, you know met through some of those same people and anyway yeah. i think it's i yeah. i i would imagine it's it's i i know that as as humans were sort of just saying, oh, I don't know, maybe, you know, this thing happened and and I got lucky or whatever the case may be. But when you're telling that story, I'm like, no, they hired you because they wanted that thing. They wanted you who does that thing. So they said, let's get Brian to do that. Yeah, it's yeah. possible. Yeah, yeah. Which, yeah, it's like, well, I'd never considered that to be my one thing. You know, as we said, we'd studied lots of different styles of music. But, <laughs> right. you know, if, if somebody finds one thing that you can do, it's like, man, go with it. You know, yeah. don't, don't, <laughs> right. you finally have something that, that'll get you, you know, uh, some gigs. You know? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Do you, do you think that, that uh, once you started doing those sort of higher profile gigs, that opened other doors for you? I don't know. I mean, I, I definitely playing that Lone Bellow tour just like, I, that there was a real thing where I got to hear my drums and we got to play like Red Rocks opening up for Brandy Carlisle. And then she did this cool thing where sometimes during the tour, she would have the Lone Bellow take over the stage and play with her singing or maybe one, a couple people in her band. So I got to play like, you know, 
drums during the headlighted spot at Red Rocks and all that stuff. And I was like, oh, this is pretty rad. And yeah. know, like, just like pounding out on drums. I was like, well, you know, after the after the sun goes down for once and you get to see all the lights and the whole thing, I was like, oh, I could get into this, you know? <laughs> um, I'm never know, going home. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's, it's not like, it, you, you know, once you get some gig like that, it's definitely not a guarantee that that sort of work is here to stay you know it's like a like a, i have a, a close friend who who i you know share a lot of my music stuff with and he's just like you know you know this music stuff man it's like it's like you're always sort of working sometimes you're going to have level two gigs and level one gigs sometimes you're going to have a level eight or nine gig but it's always going to be a mix of threes fours fives whatever and it's not it's not like you're working your butt off so that you can finally get one level 10 gig and then you and you ride the number 10 gig out forever it's like it's yeah. always going to be a mix and you're back and forth and you know, yeah. and then you know, Brandy moved on to another drummer after after she made a record with um, Dave Cobb, and you know they decided on someone else to make the record, and uh, you know whatever that happens, I, it's like the same way I got the gig is the same way that someone else got the gig. It's just sure. like oh, someone else made the recording, so they ended up doing the tour, you know. And so after that, I was like, well, now I'm in LA. Let's see how much like session work I can do, and see what different kind of gigs I can get involved with, and and. Uh, you know, just like playing with friends and just being being flexible and showing up with a good attitude and trying to be as prepared as possible for even the smallest little gig. And then hopefully people will recommend you for stuff. You mm -hmm. know? Yeah. And I, I agree with the point of you're never going to be, you know, unless you're Chad Smith and you end up in the Chili Peppers and that's just your thing. You're yeah. going to be jumping from a 10 to a 4 to a 7 to a 10. And it's, and it's true yeah. with musicians. It's true with, with, you know, actors. You see people who are mega stars on a television show and then you know next they're on some made for tv movie or something you know yeah yeah and, and hopefully they're all fulfilling on different levels you know sure yeah yeah, yeah. and you look so at you're gonna you're gonna learn things and experience success and in, in different ways like maybe this one doesn't pay great but man you're, you're really in some vibe with some bass player or something that's just like one of your favorite things or whatever it is you know exactly yeah. exactly I think that there's there's the one side where you want to make sure that you're making enough money and on all of those things, yeah. but and then the other side is you know I don't make much money playing this gig, but damn, I love it and yeah, I keep doing yeah. it. Yeah, you know? yeah, all right, yeah. So how did all of this lead to getting the Black Crows gig? Um, this led to I'd say um when i was touring with brandy carlisle we did um uh, there was a couple weeks where katie tunstall opened up for mm -hmm. brandy and uh and i'd met some of her band and, and um the great rachel eckroth was playing keyboards on that and rachel's this terrific jazz piano and keyboard player and also great singer songwriter and everything in between like her music is so creative and stuff and so we had met and on that and then maybe I don't know how much longer after that tour I, I ran into her in a at some gig in LA because she was living there and she's married to Tim LaFave. Mm -hmm. And but anyway, she she was like, Hey, we should do some gigs. And I did some like trio gigs with her and some rehearsals at their house. And sometimes Tim was around, sometimes he wasn't. And, you know, it's a, a bunch of different bass players had done those gigs and it was just awesome just to get to know her thing. But I, anyway, I got to know Tim better, even though I'd seen him play probably five hundred times in New York City back when I was living there. But when I was in LA, you know, like, uh, I just got to know him a little bit better. You know, we, we started talking about cycling a bit. He's really into cycling. And then he heard me play her music a fair amount. And then, um, I, you know, I shared with him some of the bands I was playing with, like in, in LA and stuff. And, 
some recordings I was working on. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, randomly, even though we hadn't played together a whole lot, he just, uh, he, he sent them my phone number when they were uh, having auditions at one point. And, um, it didn't come around the first time around that they were auditioning people. Um, but then, you know, it opened up again and, um, you know, I got a phone call last January saying that, that, uh, that they'd gotten my phone number from Tim and asked if I would come in and audition in a couple of months. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I'm super grateful for that. Yeah. So what is that? Because I know that I know it's no secret that the the Black Crows are notoriously tough on drummers. And when I when I say that, I don't mean in a bad way. I mean they're just they're demanding of drummers. Mm-hmm. Um, what is that? What's that rehearsal process like, or or, or the audition process like? Was that was it nerve wracking, or were you sort of like I'm just going to go in and do my thing? Um, man, I I, I kind of threw a lot at it. I, I the through my years of playing with my my buddy Jamie McLean, you know, we sort of we listened to a lot of the Black Crows, and I saw them a couple times during dur- during some years that I was living in New York, and I've I've have seen the band deliver some unbelievable stuff, and uh, mm-hmm. and um, I, I think you know because of my years playing with my buddy Jamie McLean, which stylistically is pretty similar to the to the Black Crows thing. It's like you know, kind of blues drenched, but like tightly constructed songs that happen to have a guitar solo in them at times, and then uh, but but not like an extensive jam band at all. It's just right. like it's just kind of hard hitting rock and roll. But you know, some shuffles and some different swampier type grooves and things that swing a little bit. And, and you know, playing with Jamie for so many years, we really focused on that for so many years. Of you know, we, we we've kind of developed a thing, and I, we still play together. I, as soon as this Crows tour ends, I'm going to do another handful of dates with Jamie, which I'm excited oh, cool. about. And, but um, uh, sorry, where was I with all that? Oh, so anyway, so you know, when when they when I came through and they said, oh, you know, here are the five songs we want everybody to learn, and but it was like two and a half months out. Richard called and said, you know, here are the songs. We're going to come in sometime late April and whatever. And um, maybe more, gosh. I, it, anyway, it, there was several months between when they called and when that audition was. And it was the pandemic. All I was doing really was riding my bike and, you know, <laughs> occasionally doing some session work. But but uh, so I had all the time in the world to prepare five songs. And, um, and, I, and I just tried to throw everything at it. Like, you know, I'd asked drummers along the way, even way before this came up, like, you know, how do they do auditions and how do you learn songs and what's your advice? And, and I'd sort of taken advice from different people on like how to memorize things. And, and I sort of made up some of my own things like, okay, here's a song, Here, you know, now that I know the recording of it, but can I play it quieter than that and feel really comfortable? Can I play it much louder than that and feel really comfortable? Can mm-hmm. I play it? Can I play it much slower than that? If they, let's say they count off really slow, can I feel comfortable? How about much faster? And how about any combination of all that? Like, what if it was much slower and louder? Can I feel normal playing that song and without like edging it up? You know, right. edging up the tempo. And so I was just giving myself little games on memorizing them. You know, and then um, yeah, I think that just sort of helped. And I, you know, I, I'd sort of been. I'd sort of just kind of learned along the way through talking with, with uh, the guitar tech. And he was just like, you know, it's a lot about paying attention to both of those guys, which I'd assumed both Chris and Rich Robinson. And somehow I just sort of went in, you know, I knew they were auditioning a bunch of different people, but uh, I just went in and I just sort of tried to focus on Chris and Rich as much as possible. I was like, you know, these guys, they, they generated this incredible catalog of music and then they're this incredible live band. Like somehow I want to see if I can support and amplify 
any direction they want to go during mm -hmm. any song. And I think some was like, the more I listened to live recordings of the songs they sent, I noticed how much like tempos were moving around and things would, you know, dynamics were shifting and, and just sort of preparing myself for that. Like, all right, what's, am I cool if I, if I slow down for this course? That's not something I'm totally used to, but it seems like it does this. Maybe I should practice that a bunch and see what that feels like and see if I can get into what that, what that does. And, and sure enough, I just tried to be as open-minded as possible during that rehearsal, uh, during that audition. And man, it was just wild. They brought the whole band to the audition and the dogs running around. And <laughs> Chris's wife is there and the manager's there. It was, it was a whole scene and, and, and it was four times louder than I'd ever imagined. And, you know, I had, they had this, you had the backline kit there. And I remember just like, just swinging for the fences with those drums just trying to have the drums speak loud enough to be heard in that room and then i was just like trying to watch as closely as possible like watch chris's feet is he moving around is he dancing like if rich has turned a little bit to the right he's standing off to my left can i see his right hand and see where his rhythm is if i can't necessarily make out every little bit of articulation and that's mm -hmm. still a lot of what i'm doing on stage every night and trying to do you know trying to get better and better at is like getting really inside all the subtle little body mechanics and then every little bit of pocket that rich is is throwing at me and how it can change within a song you know mm -hmm. it's this like constantly moving target that's just, but it's so fun i mean that music is so deep that it's just like the, the more i get inside it you, you really realize how you can amplify each section of each song and kind of it in its own different way it's sure wild. Yeah. I, I do think it's crazy that they brought the whole band and everything for the yeah for the yeah yeah I, yeah, I, I didn't know what to expect. I didn't think everyone would be there. And then and it was just like, oh, wow, this is this is full on. <laughs> and, and some part of me was just like, you know, I went into the room. I was like, well, you know, I know they're auditioning a bunch of guys. But, you know, at the end of today, like, I'm going to get to play a half an hour with like one of the greatest rock and roll bands ever. You know, I was right. like, so some part of me is like, let's just enjoy the hell out of this. This is going to be awesome. Sure. I love these songs. And. And uh, we got to play a bunch of great songs. And then, uh, you know, I did notice at one point, I was just like out, like, I've told a couple of friends this. Uh, <laughs> I was out like, you know, bashing on a ride cymbal just to, as a crash, you know, some some heavy section of some song. And I just noticed that, I, that my, my top hi-hat cymbal was just fluttering, like up and down <laughs> and up and down. I was like, oh, I'm nervous. Look at this. I literally just, my left, my left leg was just spazzing out. And I remember just <laughs> chuckling to myself. I was like, I'm not worried. I was like, this is where we are. This is how it's going today. Like, you know, I'll, if I need to get back to like a tight little hi-hat thing, like somehow I'll wrangle it together, you know? And, uh, and so that was just kind of that. I remember just beaming ear to ear. I was like, oh, whatever happens, like, I know this was really fun playing with just like this raging barn burner of a band. Yeah. I mean, it was just like, literally just felt like the barn was on fire when that band kicked in. I was like, Holy crap! That's incredible. It's that's a awesome. Massive jet engine. Yeah. How long did you have to and, wait before you found out? Uh, and well, then they said they would call. Uh, um, they're like, "All right, thanks, man. You know, appreciate it. We'll call you in a couple of days or whatever." And then I was like riding my bike in Griffith Park the next morning with a bunch of friends, and uh, and I see a phone call come in at like ten in the morning. They're like, "Yeah, can you come back in today at three o'clock or three thirty or something?" Oh yeah, sure. I hadn't considered that option. So I literally just like very safely turned my bike around, rode home, rode home <laughs> got my car, went to my drum room and just played through the tunes again, tried to like fix the couple little mistakes. Like I remember I spaced on one little ending or something. I just like went and just played through the tunes again. And, and, and then I just drove back over to the rehearsal room and I was like, 
all right, maybe something worked yesterday and I don't need to be so nervous. Like, you know, when you're meeting brand new people, yeah. I didn't know, I didn't know anybody in the room. I'd never met anyone. So you just don't know what they're, you know, are they looking at my haircut? Am I wearing the right shoes? Like maybe they don't like the snare sound. You know, I brought up a snare, but I was just like, you just don't know like what, you know, if you're meeting a stranger, you just don't know what they're listening for or looking for, you know? Yeah. So anyway, so I was just able to go in that next day and feel like, well, I'm going to do my thing the way it felt good yesterday. And I was like, cause something worked. And so I was like, mm-hmm. that, so that felt great. And that sort of just gave me, a, made me feel a little more relaxed. And I was able to go in that next day and just like, you know, play the tunes that made se- the way that made sense to me. No idea if it, if it still made sense to them or not, but, um, I don't know. And I just ended up having a blast that day too. We played like another four songs maybe. And, and then, uh, and then Chris ended up calling me later that night, asked if I wanted to do it. So, you know, that's I was awesome, excited, man. of course. Yeah. Yeah. That is awesome. Yeah. 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 I, 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 I mean, I feel so fortunate, you know, I feel fortunate that like an opportunity with a band like this came up with, with a style of music that I, I'm by no means an expert in, but, but it's a style of music I had been thinking about for a good 10 or 15 years. You know? Right. Right. I mean, even I, though, yeah, even though I didn't know their whole catalog or anything, but sure. just like see, I remember seeing them play in 2007 at the Voodoo Fest in New Orleans, and they absolutely tore my face off. And, <laughs> and so, some part of me knew, gosh, I want to deliver that in that room. That experience I had watching them on the stage playing at like however many <laughs> decibels. Right. <laughs> I just was like, I want to see if I can deliver that experience, you know, because I know that this band can do this incredible thing. So somehow I want to see if I can, you know, live up to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And while you were telling the story about, you know, playing with Jamie and 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 sort of understanding the style of music, it makes a lot more sense now that going into this gig that like, you know, I would say that, that you're the, you know, equipped to do it as much as anyone else. So uh, if, if, if not more, because, because you have this, this background and things like that, and then obviously put the, put the work in. And I think the, the important thing also is to the gig short, like there's a couple of things that pointed out to me of, of how you got this gig. One, just the, the relationship building that you've been doing over all of these years of meeting this person and going out and, and going to these gigs and meeting different people and, and building genuine relationships instead of what people, you know, people are like, Oh, I'm going to go network, which is like, I hate that word. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then the flip side is the preparation, not only prior to the rehearsal, but way before you were even considered for this gig or, or three gigs before that, just all the hard work and, 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 dedication you had to building your skill set and your craft so that when these opportunities arise you're ready or you're even in a position for these opportunities to come to you and i think that that's the thing that we that we skip over a lot of times where they're like oh that person got that gig they knew somebody and they were lucky and it's like yeah if they knew someone but they couldn't play or they weren't prepared they wouldn't have gotten Mm. the gig yeah period yeah i mean i just feel fortunate that you know, I've had other auditions in LA, you know, not many, but, but I had been called for ones, but it wasn't music that I was super familiar with yet. And I, I put in as much effort as possible trying to learn it. But I, it, comparing that to like with the Black Crows thing, it's like when that phone call came in for the audition, I was like, well, here's music that I already have an emotional connection to. You know? Right. So I was able to already pull up all this enthusiasm for different parts of their songs and different, you know, records of theirs and all that, you know? Yeah. 
And, uh, you know, there's something I think about from time to time, friends of, of we've, we've talked about, it's just like any gig you do is an audition. You know, if you're playing the smallest little like cocktail jazz set at, you know, some little wedding or something, you're, you're kind of auditioning for the people you're playing with because they're going to recommend you for other stuff mm -hmm. or not. And so, you know, the smallest little nothing informal gig, there's never any, it's never a bad idea to be a hundred percent prepared as if it, as if you're like, you know, playing some Grammys award ceremony, like the biggest gig you can think of, whatever it's like, you can put in that level of preparation and it's just going to lift the music. And if you do that, m maybe somebody's going to send your number to somebody else, you know? Yeah. I yeah. don't know. Yeah. I, I agree. I agree. Yeah. Or th yeah. who knows who's in the audience or, you know, yeah, you just you just playing. really don't. I mean, you know, you've seen enough gigs. Like when you just see somebody, and you're like, "Whoa, I got to tell my friend about this person I just saw." Yeah, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> yeah. you can't wait. It's like you witness something great. You want to, you know, and and we all know drummers that like, you know, or any musicians who just like, as soon as they started playing clubs, immediately they got picked up because everybody just couldn't stop talking about that. You know, yeah. I don't know. I'm necessarily that player, but I think just. You know, if, if just being a just trying to be as good a craftsman at your instrument as you can, and be, learning to be flexible, especially like that's that's a thing that's that you I, I definitely learned more of just work, work, working with more singers and stuff. It's just like being able to decipher sometimes if people doesn't use if they have their own like music language to describe how something sounds or if they want something different. Like mm -hmm. just be ready to change anything. You know. Yeah. Can you Absolutely. throw a towel on your snare drum in the middle of the set, you know, because like somebody's giving you a funny look or whatever <laughs> it is, or can you slow down on a dime, even though it, it's like, it seems like the exact wrong thing to do, but, but somebody on stage wants it. It's like, all right. Yeah. I, <laughs> I, I agree. Yeah. yeah. So it's hard. It's hard. Yeah. I know you have, uh, I know you have the, the Shaker Moneymaker tour that you're on now that runs, yeah. uh, I mean, you have dates all the way into October and then you have the stuff with Jamie McLean. Mm -hmm. Um, where, where's the best place for people to find out all of this stuff or keep an, keep an eye on where you're playing so they can come check you out? Uh, oh, that's a good question. Um, I would say, I mean, the, right now the rest of this tour and then there's, they just announced a couple of Vegas dates for the, for the black crows thing on the black crows website, which is, I think is the black .com. And then, um, you know, I post things from time to time on my Instagram, which is, uh, Brian Griffin drums. And then, uh, and then Jamie McLean band. I, I don't, he, there, he's, there's a couple different drummers who've been doing it, but, uh, I am doing a couple dates between like October, October one and five or something like that a couple things around the northeast that we're doing together okay, cool yeah some things in connecticut nice, and new jersey and all that yeah well good deal and i'll link yeah. up i'll link up to everything uh in the show notes so people can find oh, your instagram and, oh, that's and awesome. all that kind of stuff as well so yeah. but man uh one thank you for for like i said jumping through the hoops to come on the show oh yeah man was such an honor yeah and yeah. i i appreciate your time and also stay safe out there on the road and, and thank you, you know, yeah with covid and all that kind of stuff and and congratulations on this gig man I'm, I'm really happy for you and i know that i know that like i said you're the right man for the job and now you get to go out there and and do this every night with these guys so that's pretty amazing oh i really appreciate it yeah i just you know grateful for any moment they'll have me you know it's, it's cool for sure right on man 
There you have it. That was Brian Griffin. And you can find the show notes by going to drummersresource.com forward slash session 630. And I put in there also, we talked about some things uh, that are in, I put some links in there of videos. And one in particular is is the uh, the Little Feet song that he had mentioned. I put that in there as well. You can check all that stuff out. Again, go to drummersresource.com forward slash session 630. And also, if you don't check out the show notes, you should. All the stuff that we talk about in the episode is included in those show notes, including links to the stuff. So check it out. Go to drummersresource.com forward slash session 630. And other than that, that's all I got. So until the next podcast, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening. And I will be talking to you soon. Peace. Drummers Resource is produced by Revoice Media. Executive producer Nick Ruffini, that's me, edited by Justin Thomas, video editing by Tomas Shannon, and graphic design by Catherine Wade. For more music and entertainment podcasts, be sure to check out revoicemedia.com.